So uh, we have been doing this sermon series titled, Who I Am, My Identity in Christ. Last week, we talked about the fact that we are not what we do. We are not defined by the things that we do. We are not defined by our gifts and our talents, our jobs, our financial uh, security or status. We're not defined by the relationships that we have. We are defined by one thing and one thing only, that we are children of God. We talked about how we cannot put our identity in things that are variables. And what a variable is, is things that is subject to change. And all these things that I mentioned are things that can change at any given moment. But one thing that will never change is the fact that you are a child of God whom he loves and is well pleased with. So that was uh, what we talked about last week. And I'm really excited to share with you guys part two in our sermon series, Who I Am, My Identity in Christ. During the week, I found myself listening to a song by one of my favorite hip-hop artists. And one of the lyrics said something that really just plucked a chord in my heart. And he said, I am not a superhuman. I am just a man. And he said it again. I am not a superhuman. I am just a man. And I begin to think about what does that mean? I'm not superhuman. I am just a man. And as I pondered that statement, I came to the conclusion of this. Because I am not superhuman and because I am just a man, that means I am vulnerable to sin. Because I am flesh, because I am skin and bone, because I have the sinful nature, I am vulnerable to sin. And sin simply put, or sin simply defined means to disobey God. And because you, too, are like me, you may not look like me or talk like me, but you are man like me, that too means that you are vulnerable to sin. We all are vulnerable to sin. We all, at any given moment, can find ourselves on the wrong side of obedience and be in a position we are, where we are disobeying God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, Surely... There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So this morning I say to you, if you sit in this room and you feel that you are without sin or that you would not be considered a sinner, then I invite you to to wake up because the Bible clearly says that we are all with sin. But the beautiful thing about being considered a sinner is the fact that that means I am welcomed by Jesus, that Jesus came for me, that he arrived on this earth for me. Paul, the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, says it like this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul, uh, the the great Bible scholar, the one who had the direct line to, to hear what God was telling him to say, and he's writing to his people, and he says, it's, it's okay to be considered a sinner, to be called a sinner, because this is a trustworthy statement that deserves your full acceptance. Jesus 
came into the world to save sinners. And then he even goes as far to declare that he is the worst of them all. Paul identified himself as a sinner, but he was not defined by his sin. And this morning, I want to use the text and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us and let us know that though we may be sinners, we are not defined by our sin. I would like to tell you all a story, so sit back and enjoy. It was just before dawn. The sun had yet to fully peak over the horizon. The morning was still awakening, and she lay there in bed next to a man who was not hers. Gratified by her secret indulgence and promiscuity, she began to get ready to leave. But just before she could get fully dressed, an angry mob of men led by a group of Pharisees burst into the room. Seize her, they exclaimed. Frightened and terrified, she began to scream, please, no, 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 don't do this, don't do this, I'm begging you, please, do not do this, don't. But with no regard or request, no regard to her request or her feelings, the men took a hold of her and they began to drag her away. Let's take her to the teacher, one of the Pharisees exclaimed. We will see what he has to say about this. And they dragged her through the city square, dragging her by her hair, barely clothed, body scraping and bouncing on the ground, accumulating bruises and scars. And no matter how hard she fought, no matter what kind of fight she put up, she could not break free. By this time, the sun had fully risen. Daytime was upon them, and bystanders were gathering alongside of the road to see where were they taking this woman and why were these men picking up stones along the way? Finally, they reached the temple where the teacher was teaching at. And they barged through the doors and the congregants of the temple were startled by the interruption. And the men bring in this woman and they put her on full display for all that are around to be seen. Teacher, we just caught this woman in the act of adultery, they exclaimed. The law tells us to stone such women. So what do you say? See, the law does state that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned to death. But the law also states that the same thing should be done to the man that was found with her. Why didn't they bring the man to be stoned as well? The truth of the matter is, is that they did not care about the law, nor did they care about this woman. They cared about one thing trying to discredit and disprove the teacher. They didn't like him because his following was growing larger than what theirs were. And he was teaching a message that was different from what they would say. And their whole purpose of showing up with this adulterous woman was to trap him into saying something that would be contradictory of himself. So they stood there with stones in their hands, ready to unleash judgment, ready to unleash condemnation. And they begin to press the teacher. The law says stone this woman, teacher. What are you going to do? 
Give us an answer, teacher. We demand an answer. The woman stood there, begging, pleading for her life. No, please don't do this. Don't do this, I say. I, I don't want to die. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm begging you. Please don't do this. All ears were tuned into her, and all eyes were locked onto the teacher. What is he going to do? What is he going to say? Answer us, teacher. Answer us. The story does not end that way, but we are going to pause right there. Do any of you know what it feels like? to be caught red-handed in sin. Caught doing something that you thought was secret. Caught doing something that you thought to yourself, no one will ever know about this. And then in the midst of your darkness, it now becomes exposed. And the very things that you wanted no one to ever find out about are now being put on full display your business, your sin, your lies, your secrecy, being told to the town, being told to the neighbors, being told to the public, the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment begins to build. And you have people in your life demanding that you be punished for what you did. People in your life demanding that you be demeaned for what you did caught in sin, and now you feel shamed, and you feel full of guilt. I just want you to hold on to that thought, because I want to tell you another story. There's another man in the Bible. His name is Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' first disciples. He was one that Jesus showed up on the shore he stepped into his boat and he told Peter to push out to the deep water and let down his nets for a catch. And Peter was grumpy about the request, but he did what Jesus asked him to do. And when it all took place and he saw the miraculous catch of fish, he turns and he gives his life to Christ. And he goes on living the rest of his life at the side of Jesus, serving him, learning from him, growing in him. And one day, Jesus has told Peter and the other disciples that he is going to have to die. Peter tries to tell Jesus that isn't going to happen, and Jesus rebukes Peter for such things, and he lets them know this is going to take place. And now Peter finds himself in the room for the Last Supper, and he's sitting there with Jesus, whom he's been close to, whom he loves who he cares about. And he's sitting there with Jesus, and this transaction takes place. This is found in Matthew 26, verse 31 through 35. The, the text will be on the screen behind me. This is what it said. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, 
this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then all the disciples said the same. Peter finds himself in the midst of some bold declarations. Peter was self-confident. Peter was believing in his own abilities and his own strength. And he had no idea what was getting ready to come. He had no idea the cup that Jesus was getting ready to drink from. But in the moment, he told Jesus, I will never do this. I will never leave you. I will die with you. He even goes to put the other disciples on blast. I don't know about these guys. I don't know about these fools. But I can tell you, for me, I will never leave you. I will be with you through everything that you're getting ready to go through. And Jesus tells them what's going to take place. And he even re-amps re on what he says. He backs it up. Not me, Jesus. Not me. I'm not going to leave you. Peter makes these bold claims, but then he finds himself in a harsh reality in just a little bit of time. The disciples leave from the dinner, and Jesus has gone to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he is there, and Peter goes with him. He's following through with his commitment. He's doing what he said he would do. And then the action happens, and men show up. A small army show up to take Jesus. And Peter even gets so bold enough to try to fight for Jesus. And he pulls out his sword and he tries to defend Jesus. And Jesus tells him, hey, put your sword away. But now that it's out of his control, Peter is frozen with fear. Instead of standing where he said he would say, which was by Jesus' side, he flees and he runs the other direction. And Jesus is taken away. And we pick up the story again in Matthew 26. This is verse 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. And a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I do not know what you're talking about, he said. But then he went out of the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow over here, that guy, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath. Listen, I promise you, I don't know that man. After a little while, they were standing. Uh, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are the one of them. Your accent gives you away. And he begins to call down curses and he swore to them. I don't know what you're talking about. I ain't never seen you before. I ain't never seen that man before. I don't know none of y'all. I'm just trying to be warm by this fire. You keep coming up here making these accusations. Don't link me to that man. I don't know that man. Get away from me. Cacaw. 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 I don't know if that's how a rooster sounds. Sorry. <laughs> but you get my point. <laughs> You, you, you get my point. <laughs> the rooster crows. 
or whatever that animal was. <laughs> and uh, the rooster crows in the midst of his bold declarations, in the midst of his curses and swearing that he does not know this man, and he hears Jesus' words echo throughout the depths of his heart. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Maybe, maybe you can identify with that. Have you ever done something, done something that you said you would never do? You, you put your foot down. I'll never do this. I'll never go that far. I'll never say this. God, I'm committed to you. I'm done with that sin. I'm never going to do that again. You were confident when you made that declaration. Confident when you said what you said you would never do. And the moment comes and the pressure builds. And then you find yourself doing the very thing that you said you would never do. And then once the moment is over, you realize you went back on your commitment. You went back on your declaration. You went back on your word. And then you are flooded with guilt. And then you find yourself in a position, I like to say, you're clinging to a G. Holding on to your guilt. Clinging to what you have done. You know your mistakes. You know the people you've hurt. You know the people that are wounded because you did what you said you never would do. And you find yourself in a moment where you are drowning in your own sorrow, drowning by the effects of what has taken place from your sin. Because that is a real reality, is that sin does just not affect us, but it also impacts all that are around us. The beautiful thing is that there is a greater G that you can cling to. But before I say that, I want to say this. God's grace is cheapened if sin is first not recognized. God's grace is not a magic wand that just forgives and wipes everything away. God's grace is powerful when recognized in the face of sin. And I believe that many times we go throughout this life and we say, oh, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, but we aren't really acknowledging the sin. Sin, when it meets grace, is overpowered when sin is recognized. The whole reason why we need grace is because sin exists. And there are many people that are trying to receive the benefits of grace, but not acknowledging their sin. And that's why this morning I started out by saying we are all sinners. To acknowledge the fact that we sin, that we make mistakes, we do things that we shouldn't do, we fall short, we sin. But there's this beautiful thing that we can cling to instead of guilt, and it's called God's grace. This is what Romans 3.20-24 through 24 says. Again, the scripture is on the screen. It says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. 
The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But Christ took our punishment. So now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. All our sinners all can experience God's grace. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Again, we're talking about our identity in Christ. In Christ Jesus, I am a sinner who has been saved by grace. So I did not get to finish my stories that I started to tell. And I want to take a moment and finish those stories. And you get to see what happens when these people come face to face with grace. This is the rest of the story that is found in John 8, dealing with the woman caught in adultery. The scripture picks up as so in John 8. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he looked down again, and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, no, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This woman is on the verge of death. She is going to die for what she had done, and according to the law, rightfully so. The Old Testament law proclaimed that she would die. And Jesus is in this moment, not caught off guard, not distraught by the trap that these Pharisees and angry people are trying to set. And he says to them, he without sin cast the first stone, and so they're like, And no stones are thrown. And when the people should have heard the screams of a woman being massacred, instead they heard. The sounds of stones hitting the ground and the once angry mob, mob quietly walking away. Romans 3.20 tells us that the law simply shows us how sinful we are. But because of Jesus, we do not have to be defined by that sin. But I wonder what, what are the people, because again, I love, I, love, I love understanding the setting in the Bible. I love understanding what's going on 
and around, in the Bible, the people that are around that are witnessing things happen. And I just want to think about, what do you, what do you think the people that are in the temple are thinking? Because in the, they were, like, remember, they were in the middle of being taught by Jesus. They didn't see this coming. I, I believe Jesus probably had the foreknowledge that this was getting ready to happen, but nobody else did. And they're in this moment where, you know, they're, they're hearing a message, and things go from hearing a message to watching it being act out. Jesus is in the middle of telling them how he is not here to condemn the world, how he is not here to, to, to bring judgment. And then a moment shows up for him to act this out. And he bends down and he begins to write in the sand. Jesus, tell me, what, what did you write in that sand? And who am I to judge when I'm such a sinful man? I really wonder, Jesus, tell me, what did you write in that sand? And who am I to judge when I am such a sinful man? Woman, daughter, where are those that condemn you? Do any of them condemn you? Not even one? No, not, not any of them, none of them. Daughter, whom I love, who I call my own, who I'm well pleased with, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. When sin meets grace, you go from death to life. When sin meets grace. That is how the story of John 8 ends. But I want to peer into how the story with Peter ends. I want us to think about the condition that we last heard of Peter being in. He was overwhelmed by his guilt. Overwhelmed by what he had done. Completely guilt-stricken. He let his best friend down. I I wonder if he's... I wonder if he's going to talk to me again. He said he was coming back. Is he going to want to see my face? I'm afraid to look at him. I I really messed this one up. What do I say to him? Is sorry good enough to make up for what I did wrong? Is sorry good enough to make up for the fact that when he needed me the most, I wasn't there? He's overwhelmed with his guilt. This is what happens according to Mark and John, the Gospels of Mark and John. In Mark chapter 16, verse 6 through 7, it says this. You are looking for Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. Well, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. My favorite part of that whole statement is, go tell his disciples and Peter. See, that was not an exclusion separating him from the disciples. It was an inclusion letting him know he's still one of us. He still belongs to me. So he tells them, Go find the disciples and Peter and tell them that he is going to be in Galilee just as I said I would be. 
And then John 21 happens, and Peter and some of the disciples are out on the water fishing in the Sea of Galilee. I love it when Jesus does what he says he's going to do. He said, I'll be in Galilee, and he shows up where they are at, fishing in Galilee. And Jesus shows up, and Peter realizes that Jesus is on the shore, and he takes off through the waters chasing to get to Jesus. And Jesus looks him in the eyes. And he asks him this one simple question. Do you love me? Hey, Peter. Do you love me? He didn't say, what happened? You were supposed to be there. What's up, macho man? I thought you had my back. <laughs> right? He, he didn't say, I thought you was willing to die. He could have looked at him like, even till death, huh? <laughs> He didn't do any of that. None of that took place. Instead, he says, do you love me? He just wanted to know, Peter, in the midst of your failure, where you dropped the ball, where you did what you said you would never do, is there something on the inside of you that still loves me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus responds to him and he says, then feed my sheep. His purpose was not taken away. He still had the chance to be and do all Jesus had commissioned him and called him to be and do. His purpose was never taken away. He was defined by this statement, do you love me? Do you love me? That's what we all are being asked this morning. Do you love me? I know you did some things that you said you would never do. I know you made some mistakes. I know you sinned. I know you dropped the ball. I know you come up short. I know you've been caught red-handed. But I'm here to ask you, do you love me? I'm going to take a moment and transition and, and just spend a short amount of time talking about another aspect where we find ourselves defined, where we find our identity. And some of us, we, we struggle with the thought of being defined by what we have done, the sins that we've committed. We find our identity in those things. But there are some people in this room whose identity is rooted in the things that have been done to them. They cannot seem to escape what has happened to them. They've been hurt by a spouse, betrayed by a friend, let down by a loved one. And there are, are, you may be sitting here and you, you may be said before in your life, I, I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve to be treated like that. I didn't deserve to be lied about like that. I didn't deserve to be born into this situation. I didn't deserve for this to happen to me. I didn't deserve the unfaithfulness. I didn't deserve the lack of support. I, I didn't deserve. And that list can go on and on and on. And your life is identified and defined by what other people have done to you that you feel that you didn't deserve. But there is a way for that to be set free from being linked to your identity. And the way that you become set free from that 
is by focusing on what Jesus did for you that you didn't deserve. That you focus on what Jesus did for you that you didn't deserve. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we didn't deserve his faithfulness. We didn't deserve his sacrifice. We didn't deserve his love. We didn't deserve his healing, his forgiveness, his redemption. We didn't deserve that he did it anyway. When we begin to no longer focus on what other people did to us that we didn't deserve and focus on what Jesus did for us that we didn't deserve. Sorry, the curse of little ears. We focus on what, what Jesus did for us that we, thanks mom, I blame you. Anyways. <laughs> when we focus on what we, we did that, uh, that Jesus did that we didn't deserve, we will no longer be defined by what others did to us, but what Jesus has done for us. I am almost done and I can rip this thing off. This morning, this morning, I stand here today and I want the power of my message for you to know that your life does not have to be defined by what you have done. That you are not what you have done. You are not the sins that you have committed. You are not how you have let people down. You have not, you are not, sorry, those things. Again, maybe you're in here and you did what you said you never would do. That's not how the God of the universe would define you. Maybe you're in here and you have been caught red-handed with sin and you are just still drowning in that same guilt and sorrow. The God of the universe would say, you, say to you this morning, you are not what you've done. You don't have to remain down in the dumps. You don't have to be a victim. God presents us all with an opportunity to rise again. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is this, Proverbs 24, 16, and it says this, though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. And let's, let's break this down. It says the righteous fall, the righteous, those who are in right standing with God those who seek after him, those who love him, those who strive to live their lives for him, those who allowed him to be Lord of their lives, those who belong to Jesus, the righteous, they fall. They fall. I love how the Bible still calls them righteous, though they fall. And then I want you to think about the numerics. It says they fall seven times. To me, that says consistently they struggle. Consistently they stumble through. Consistently they make mistakes. Falling seven times, that's not a coincidence. That's a battle. But they rise again. They rise again. Each time after falling, they get up and they rise again. They are able to get up and rise again because they are not defined by their sin, not defined by what they've done, not defined by what's been done to them. They rise again. And so this morning, I want to end 
in a very unique way. And I want to call anyone who has fallen to rise again. Anyone that's been caught red-handed in sin, anyone that has done what they said they would never do, anyone struggling, anyone in the middle of a battle, maybe you're on time number eight. Maybe you've fallen time 2,563. <laughs> but you get to rise again. This is what God's word says. God says, God, God's word says that his grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. God's grace, sufficient. The grace that takes you from death to life, sufficient enough to sustain you in the middle of difficult times, sufficient enough to see you through. It is made perfect in your weakness. It is made perfect when you have fallen seven times. It is made perfect when you have fallen ten times. It is made perfect when you make the decision to rise again. And the word goes on to say, he says that his mercy is new every morning. That is found in Lamentations 3.23. It says, great is his faithfulness and his mercies are new, made new every morning. And take a look outside. I think it's morning. And if it's morning, that means there's new mercy. And if you're struggling, that means there's sufficient grace. The only thing left is for you to make the most of the moment, for you to take advantage of this time. I have heard many people in my life say, I could never go to church. I'd catch on fire as soon as I walked the doors. Maybe you have heard somebody say that. And they say, you know, later, you know, or different time in my life. Different time, a different this and a different that, but there is this interesting thing that I've learned about time. And it is the fact that you can never postpone it. For it has not stopped ticking since the Father set it in motion. I want to take you to a moment that will excite you. It is a nice view. As you sit there with tears streaming down your face, overwhelmed with joy as you hold your firstborn child with your spouse sitting right beside you. Doesn't that sound so delightful? But now I want you to think about being faced with a decision. You know, like when the reality of a crazy situation and your faith has to make a collision. And in that moment, what you would decide would make everything different. Now hold on to that vision. Let me transition. I want to tell you how I was living. I was mad at the world, boastful, disrespectful, and ignorant, rude and belligerent, degrading to women, foul-mouthed, bitter, and scorned, and a bunch of things that I'd rather not mention. And in the midst of my peers showering me with attention, I came to the recognition that there was something that I was still missing. But when that water hit me and I became fully submerged, 
and I had an encounter with the greatest love that exists in the earth for it had the power to carry my burdens and heal the wounds for my hurts. And in that moment, I learned that Jesus is a living organism, not an exhibit. And that the church is a movement, not a place that you visit. And that the God of the universe is willing to reveal himself and leave nothing encrypted. So maybe you're in this room and you feel so ashamed because of what someone else has done to you. Or could it be that over all of these years you sit back and recognize that you have become the person that you never wanted to? If that is you, then I need you to hear me loud and clearly. If you are here and you struggle with what your past is, feel ashamed and no longer can mask it, then the one thing that I want to ask is for you to think about the Apostle Paul who was killing Christians by the masses. He went on to have an impact with Jesus on the way to Damascus and he stopped leaving a trail of caskets. Instead, he picked up his pen and he penned passage after passage and went on to have an impact that was massive. And the same God who created this atlas and rotates the earth on its axis, he knows what you've done. He sees what people have done to you. He understands the struggle and he says, I refuse to leave you as is. So step by step, he took a pursuit with tenacity and intensity just to say, I love you. And he didn't just do it for me. See, he did it for you. And right now, in this moment, he is asking you, what are you going to do? So slow everything down. Bring it all to a standstill. I know a lot of things that you tried haven't worked, but I promise that this man will. Some of you have gotten so numb to the point that you can't feel and you think that you are trash. Well, I got news for you. You are not a landfill and you are not your mistakes and your mistakes have been forgiven all because of the man that tore through hell's prison. Told death you are finished, told darkness you're diminished, rose and then days later made his ascension. So maybe you're in this room and you've had a failure in a business. Could it be that your kids have gone astray and they are straddling the fences? Maybe you just don't get it. How after so many years you still find yourself battling and wrestling with the same addictions. Do you feel overwhelmed by debt? Drowning your expenses? Do you feel so defenseless to the point that you get defensive? Are you diagnosed with an illness, a terminal sickness? Maybe you're just having problems with the Mr. or Mrs. Listen, whatever it is, this is your moment. So who's here with an expectancy? Who's been on a downward slide but is willing to change their trajectory? Who is willing to say, today I can set forth in motion a legacy? If that is you, then you need to understand a relationship with Jesus Christ is not a convenience, but it is a necessity. So if you have fallen, then I want you to know that you are in the perfect environment. Because every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour, every minute, every second has led to this moment where God is giving you an opportunity to rise again. Would you please stand?